know what that means. Uh, other than I, I don't know, do I have extra time? Um, tonight what we're going to do is I, I have a couple of things that I need to finish from last week that we didn't get to. And uh, then what we're going to do is we're going to look at specifically the Old Testament tonight. So we've kind of looked at some general things. And we covered some terminology necessary for us to even really begin to have this conversation. And I kind of just want to go over those words we talked about. We talked about the word Bible. An easy word for that is what? What does Bible mean? Book. It's very simple. Testament really refers to what? Covenant. Uh, Scripture refers to? Writings. The autograph means? The original, and a manuscript is a copy of the original at whatever time in history. could be a thousand years later from the original. doesn't matter. It's a manuscript. And textual criticism is seeking to answer what question? What did the original say? Um, we are concerned with that question, yes? Uh, I think we want to know what did the original say because we believe the Bible to be inspired in its autographs. And so we seek to understand what those autographs said and what is the process we use? Textual criticism, what does that look like? That's a, that's a big thing. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> uh, I, I, I am, that is, not my, I, that is not my field. I don't know that I really have a field, but that's not it. I mean, I know that's not it for sure. Uh, but there are people who that is their field. That's what they devote their time to. We talked about three text types. These are actually very important. There's three different areas where our manuscripts come from. And those three different areas, the manuscripts that come from those areas, we kind of already know something about them in general. And they're in really three major uh, uh, text types or families. The best and oldest manuscripts come from where? Anybody remember that? That would be Alexandria or the Alexandrian text type or text family. Okay, the next would be the Byzantine, which are older, or uh, excuse me, I meant the opposite of that. They're newer manuscripts, okay? Uh, and then Western manuscripts, which there's not that very many of. All right? And then finally, there were three methods for going about this process of textual criticism. And we talked about how you can have a copy of a manuscript from the year 200, a copy of a manuscript from the year uh, 1500, okay, let's say, that's not really, a, a, let's say 1000, okay? You have one from the year 200, that's pretty good, right? A New Testament manuscript. And then one from the year 1000. Um, but the thing is, is that I have five from the year 1000 and only one from the year 200. Now the ones that are from the year 1000 all say Lord, whereas the one from 200 says Christ. Which one are we going with? Most likely we're going with Christ. Because even though there's not as many of them that is older, especially if it's an Alexandrian from the Alexandrian family, those are better manuscripts, okay? All right, uh, so we talked about majority text. We don't really use that. It's not just because of all of, most of them say this, we go with that. That's not how we do it. Um, I say we, 
we're not doing anything. Uh, Textus Receptus, uh, that's the Greek text that's behind uh, the King James Version of the Bible. We talked about that. The main person involved in that was named Erasmus. And Luther and Erasmus didn't really get along, but they used each other's work. Critical text, that's where you take all the documents, all the manuscripts, and you compare them, and you see which ones are best, and you come up with what we believe to be the best version. That's what we really believe. Based on all these manuscripts, this is probably what the original said. The critical text continues to change as more manuscripts are added. So the more manuscripts we find of the Bible, we might be changing wording. Now, I had a conversation um, with someone after last week, and the question was asked about how kind of this happens. But I want you to know that even though there are differences in manuscripts, that in all these differences and variations, and some say Lord, and some say Christ, and some say the, some don't say the. You know, it's like these, there's, they're minor differences, and they're not going to change biblical doctrine. That's what's amazing about all these variations in the text. It's actually not going to change significant Bible doctrine. Now, it might change, like, the emphasis we put on a particular thing or forcing an application based on a text, but it's not going to change the basics or even um, many things of what we believe. It's just not. And the example I gave is there's not a, a manuscript we found that says Jesus is not God, right? We didn't find that. Mary was not a virgin. We didn't, we don't, you know, it's like it's not going to say these big things like that. So even though there are differences in manuscripts, we don't get hung up on the fact, well, if God is going to preserve and, and, and keep his word over time, why all the differences? God's not very good at that, is he? But no, God is actually very good at that, and that's some of what we're going to talk about tonight. We looked at ancient writing materials, stone, clay, papyrus. We looked at really two methods that these different materials were used to make works. And there are really two primary things that we find manuscripts in. What are those two primary things that we find manuscripts in? Do we find books bound like this? Is that how we find manuscripts? What are the two ways that we find manuscripts? Scrolls is one way. What was the other way? In a codex. Yeah, yeah. And the plural of that is a codice, codices. Okay, more than one. Um, and that's, it's kind of like a book, but it's a little different. It's multiple sheets of parchment or vellum um, laid on top of each other, okay? Which we haven't even got to yet. We talked about uh, uncials and minuscules. It's a very basic difference that's not even specific to Greek. Um, that, an uncial is, is, you can use that in different languages, but it refers to what? If a manuscript is an uncial form, what does that mean about it? It's all caps, no spaces, no punctuation. No spaces between words, no punctuation, no paragraph breaks. I mean, that's hard stuff to read. That's the older manuscripts. The more recent manuscripts, and by that we may still mean very, very old, but the more recent manuscripts are called minuscules. And they do contain uppercase letters, lowercase letters, breaks between words, paragraph breaks, different things like that, okay? But we talked about the four great uncial codices. And those are very significant. Um, Codex Sinaiticus, 
Codex Vaticanus, Codex Alexandrinus. Um, so we looked at those. Okay, moving on. We need to talk about, and I'm going to cover this very quickly, just these last few writing materials. Leather. Some of the Dead Sea Scrolls are written on leather. And someone has squished their keys in their pocket. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh -huh. Some of the Dead Sea Scrolls are written on leather. And so it's just animal skin. And you write on it and you roll it up and you bind it together. Okay, that's pretty simple. Um, we can move on from that one. That's pretty, you get that. Parchment or vellum. This is the outside of papyrus, which we learned about last time. Parchment or vellum is one of the primary things that we're going to find our manuscripts written on, parchment or vellum. And really the only difference between parchment and vellum that I can find is that vellum is made of calf skin, whereas vellum is just any form of animal skin, that, and they, they kind of bleach it and they prepare it to make it more bright white so that the text looks better on it. I mean, think about leather. You know, like your belt or something might be leather. It probably looks pretty dark. How do you write on that? So parchment and vellum is bleached in a sense, and so they can write on it, and the text kind of pops from it a little bit better. Okay? Other writing materials, wood. I, I don't know. Uh, ivory. I've never written anything on ivory either. Uh, Ostraca, this is very interesting. Ostraca are broken pieces of pottery. And it's like scrap paper to us. There was so much pottery in the ancient world that there were broken pieces of pottery everywhere. And so they would collect them like we would collect a basket of scrap paper. And so when you needed to write something down, you'd go grab a piece of broken pottery and you'd write on it. That's interesting, isn't it? And there are tons of those. And a lot of times we find biblical text written on them. Interesting, isn't it? Um, now, it wasn't like a collection of a whole work or something, but it was maybe someone was writing it for a particular purpose, for a church service or personal use or something like that. It's pretty interesting. It is to me anyway. Metal. You can write, you can find manuscripts on metal. And I'm just going to show you one example, and this is our last thing, and we're going to move on to what we have for tonight. The Silver Ketef Himon Scroll. Listen to how old this thing is. It is from between the years 600 and 700 B.C. This thing is very, very, very old. In fact, it is the oldest document ever found with any kind of biblical text on it. And it's silver. That's the material. It's silver. Um, but you can tell it's, it's uh, not much of a fragment, is it? It's, I mean, <laughs> it's little. Uh, so, but anyway, it's actually two pieces of rolled up silver, and what is on it, what's contained on this is Numbers 6, verses 24 through 26. Pretty interesting, huh? When was paper invented in the form that we have it today? Not to the year 900. So, of course, you're going to have different writing materials than up until here. So what does that mean? I just want us to get a better context of the fact that our Bible doesn't just come out of nowhere and land in paper form and we go to the store and we buy it. Do you know, just like, uh, it's just a thought that popped into my head, that's dangerous, isn't it? But it's just like when we go to the store and we buy packaged meat, where did that meat come from? Don't you see that we're starting to get removed from the source? We're starting to get removed from, how did all this stuff get here? I don't know, I just go buy it at the store. 
Same thing with our Bible. How did this thing get here? I don't know. I just go buy it at the store or I go online and I get it. And we need to be, we need to be better informed about where this thing came from, right? Okay, so let's talk about the Old Testament tonight. The Old Testament. I figure it's best to start there. The Old Testament is, are the works of the Old Covenant. And I first want to start by talking about the two primary manuscripts, because we've been talking about writing materials and manuscripts. There are two primary manuscripts that we have for the Old Testament. And you might think that doesn't sound like a lot, does it? Because do you remember how many manuscripts I told you we have for uh, our New Testament critical text? Would they compare and contrast? Does anybody remember that number, that figure? About 5,800. Now, altogether, including fragments and things, there are about 800 manuscripts of the Old Testament, whereas there are about 5,800 of the New Testament. Um, but in full, complete form, a whole new Old Testament, I didn't mean to say new, a whole Old Testament, um, there are two major sources for our, you think, it's so, it's, we have our printed Old Testament, Right? Where did this text come from in history? Look at all these pages. That's a lot of material. Where did this come from? Primarily, actually only one complete manuscript is where all of our printed English Old Testaments came from, one manuscript. And it was written in the Middle Ages. Pretty unbelievable. But I'll show you those two manuscripts and I'll cover this somewhat quickly. So if you're curious as to what their names are, this first one is the Aleppo Codex. It's a codex. We already know what that means, right? The Aleppo Codex. Here's what it looks like on the inside, if you're curious. Okay, so what we'll notice right away are all the little dots and things. Do you see these little, that's the main text. You see these little dots and everything? See those? Okay, up, around, above, tucked inside. Those would not have appeared in the original Hebrew. None of those dots and stuff would have appeared. Those didn't come around until about the year 1000 AD. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But it's written on parchment, okay, which means that it was on an animal skin that's been bleached a little bit. So look how nice we can read it. You know, it looks kind of white like paper. It contains the full text of the Hebrew Bible, this one codex, the whole Old Testament, in full. I mean, it's probably, it's a little bigger than this. Okay, big old book. Uh, it was, I have to say in the past tense, the oldest complete copy of the Hebrew Bible in existence. And it dated to the year 920 A.D., that doesn't seem very old. There was an unfortunate event that happened in the year 1947, and there were uh, riots, and it was set on fire intentionally by rioters who hated the Jews. And only 294 of the original 487 pages remain. The oldest copy of the Hebrew Bible has been significantly injured or lost or burned. Some people think it was just stolen and someone's hanging on to it at home. Some people think that. 
Other people say, I mean, it was definitely burned because the place it was being held was burned. That's, not, that's sad, isn't it? But guess what? No one said anything about this in all the research that I've been doing. What else happened in 1947? When the oldest manuscript of the Hebrew Bible was burned, what else happened in 1947? They found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, don't you see that as unbelievable? Is that coincidence? I don't see how that could possibly be coincidence. I think that's good. All right, the Dead Sea Scrolls do predate this by a thousand years because you might be thinking, well, the Dead Sea Scrolls are older than this thing. But they're individual roles, and not every book is accounted for of the Old Testament. So the oldest complete Old Testament we have compiled is from the year, well, it was 920. But now we have to go to a newer one because that one doesn't exist anymore in its full form. Um, but we have to talk about here the Masoretes. You might remember, I hope you do anyway, a sermon I preached not too long ago about the name of God. Do you remember that? We talked about Yahweh, and we talked about the name Jehovah. Do you remember any of this that we talked about? Is Jehovah a proper expression of the name of God? No. And why not? Well, it's a little complicated, isn't it? It's, it's like, well, I don't know, I kind of remember. It has something to do with the Hebrew, right? The name of God, we, so I was talking to you about all these little dots, right? All these little dots. Those were added by the Masoretes. And what the Masoretes decided is that in Babylon, in Babylonian captivity, the Jewish language and the Jewish Bible and the Jewish people um, kind of took on a little bit of the personality of their captors. And things aren't as pure as they once were. Let's get back to the purity of the traditions of our fathers. And so they wanted to preserve a pure text for future generations. The thing about this is that all the big texts you see are only consonants. There are no vowels. There are no vowels in that. Well, there is in this, but it's all the little dots. All the little dots and dashes and things, those are the vowels. The original Hebrew text doesn't contain vowels. So when they got to the word Yahweh, they added the vowels for a different word. And that word was Adonai, so that the reader would know, don't say Yahweh, say Adonai, even though we're still going to write Yahweh. But if you pronounce it incorrectly, you say the name Jehovah, which is just wrong. It's just, it's just incorrect on every level. So it's Yahweh, but the Hebrews didn't say Yahweh, right? They said Adonai, Lord. Okay, it was the Masoretes who did that. The Masoretes were writing and, and, uh, and making copies of the Bible from the 6th to the 10th century to about the year 1000 or 1100-ish, somewhere around there. They are the ones who wrote this codex. The Masoretes themselves, the ones who came up with this system, wrote this, and we have it in our possession today. All right, that's the first codex, and there's only one more, the Leningrad Codex. The Leningrad Codex, this is part of the cover. That's pretty, isn't it? Uh, that's why I got it. I wanted, to, I wanted you to see it. Um, there are copies of this everywhere. If you just Google search Leningrad Codex, there are just tons of images out there from the inside of this. This comes from the year 1008 AD, 1008. And it is a Masoretic manuscript. 
It is the primary source text for our English Old Testament. It is the oldest now. This one is now the oldest complete copy of the Hebrew Bible that we have in all of your Bibles, no matter what copy of the Bible you have, your English Old Testament is based on the Leningrad Codex, almost singularly. Uh, I wanted to verify that actually, and so I, uh, I did some research into the source text for the ESV, and if you dig far enough, it finally says we used the Leningrad Codex for the Old Testament. And so, it's true. Uh, it's really there. We're going to talk tonight about the canon of the Old Testament. The word canon comes from a Greek word, and that Greek word is canon. It means rule, measuring stick, or rod. And uh, it really means a straight rod used for a standard. So you get something that's straight, and you hold it up against something else, and you know whether that thing is straight or not. Right? That concept makes sense. Well, eventually, they would want to know at what level it was straight. So you would make, you take your rod and you'd make little dashes on it. We do something like that today. It's a tape measure or a ruler. It's the same thing. It's just the earlier form of that. And so you would hold it up against something and see how it measures up. But eventually, it also came to refer to a list or a set of dashes, a straight list that is good. And that's what the canon of the Bible means. It is a good list. Okay? And that's why it's called the canon of the Bible. Um, but it also means something else over time. It came to mean the standard for faith, the standard of faith or the standard or rule of faith and practice. Okay? So not only is this measured up to a standard, it is the standard. It's both. Okay? So... When we say canon of the Old Testament, what we mean is a collection of books that are understood to be the very word of God. Uh, I'll at least say this, but I'm going to come back to it because it's applicable right now. You might ask, how d how, what did you use as a standard to say whether or not a book belongs in the Old Testament? Because there are a lot of ancient writings, but which books belong in the canon of the Old Testament? How many books in our canon of the Old Testament? 39. Do Catholics agree? They have more. Why? They decided the canon should contain more books. We're going to talk about that too, but not tonight. Um, we'll go on to how these books were formed and how the canon of the Old Testament was formed. Um, I think you'll like this because it makes you really think about your Bible. I understand it's small. I'm going to read it, though. There's a list of nine things here on the screen. Okay, you might, might be able to make out that I've listed nine things with nine, nine numbers. Okay, the first one there says, The Chronicles of Samuel the Seer from Second Chronicles 29.29. The next one says, The Chronicles of Nathan the Prophet, 2 Chronicles 29, 29. The next one says, The Chronicles of Gad the Seer. By the way, are the is that a book of your Old Testament? The Chronicles of Gad the Seer. Turn to Chronicles of Gad the Seer, chapter 4. That's not in our Old Testament. But all these Old Testament 
book, all these Old Testament quotations say that these books exist. That's the point here. The book of the covenant is mentioned in Exodus 24, verses 1 through 7. What book is that? Turn to book of the covenant, chapter 1. We don't have that. What is that? The book of the generations of Adam is referenced in Genesis 5, a book that existed of generations before the writing of the book of Genesis. That's interesting. Or the book of the law, Deuteronomy 31.26. 1 Kings uh, 11.41 references the book of the Acts of Solomon. We don't have that either. Or the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. That's referenced a lot. Uh, the one, one place you can go to see that's 1 Kings 14.26. There's also a book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel in 2 Kings 1.18. Okay? I have a couple texts for us to read um, outside of these uh, references, so let's look at those. Okay, first one is 2 Chronicles 16.11. The Acts of Asa from first to last are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. That's in Chronicles, Second Chronicles. So you would think if there was something written to chronicle the lives here, it would either be in First or Second Kings or in Chronicles. You would think. But this is referencing an additional work that is none of what we have in our Bible. So where is that? And the question is, if we were to find that book today, would we add it to our Old Testament canon? Right, Jeannie? Yeah. What do you think? If we were to find, go back to that last one if you would, Jimmy. If we were to find any of these that are Old Testament references, if we were to find today in some remote place an ancient copy, I mean, from the year 1500 BC, and it says, clearly, the Chronicles of Gad the Seer, would we then open up our Old Testament canon of 39 books and say, we have to include this now. Now we have 40. Would we do that? What do you think? What's the consensus of the room? No. Generally, people are saying no or don't know what to think. Is that not a difficult question to answer? You might say no, but why do we say no? I hope that by the end of tonight, you'll have, to, you'll have an answer. Okay? Let's look at our next one, Second Chronicles 32.32. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his good deeds, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Let's read this again because something interesting just happened. The rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his good deeds, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet. Do you have a book in your Bible that is the vision of Isaiah the prophet? It is, we call it Isaiah. We have that one. Originally, it was found in another book, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Isn't that one very interesting? So what we see happening here is we have source 
material for the Old Testament. Source material for writing the Old Testament. When the book of Genesis was being written, it wasn't as though Moses one day went into a trance-like state and started writing and all these things were coming back to his memory. It's one of those things where his hand is moving and he doesn't even, and he looks down and he's, he, he, he doesn't know what he just wrote, you know? It's not like that. But God used source material for them to write authoritative words of God. Can God do that? Is God, are you uncomfortable with the fact that God might use source material that is, there's the book of the generations of Adam sitting over here. Moses is over here writing about, my book's upside down, writing about Adam. He says, let me consult the book of the generations of Adam. Yeah, that's right. And he keeps writing. Are you okay with that? I hope you are, because that's how it happened. Um, not only that, we see that happening in m all these cases that I, these are all source, this is all source material. And we're okay with source material because God is preserving this information over time. And eventually it is written into an authoritative work and the community sees that as the authoritative work and they say, this is it. And the whole community agrees and they preserve it and it has come all the way down to us today. And this is, generally speaking, how it's happened. Or one, one last one about, about this, Daniel 9, 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. The significant part here is that Daniel the prophet consulted what? What books? It, w it was Jeremiah, right? What did he call it? According to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, he consulted it where? in a book. Where did Daniel go to find the word of the Lord? A book. What book? Jeremiah. And he's using source material here as well, isn't he? Do you see other biblical authors admitting that what other biblical authors did was the word of the Lord? And then their, their material later on is added as others of the community recognize that this is the word of the Lord. Okay, but... So this continues to happen generation after generation after generation and source material is compiled, books are compiled. The first books of our Bible to be compiled and for the Jewish community to say, this is the word of God. What was that? What do you think? What'd you say? Now, Job may be the oldest document but it wasn't the first compilation of what they considered to be their canon of God's word. The Torah, that is exactly that. Or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. That has been referenced for a very long time, and they knew this is the law 
the teaching, the word of God. And then over time, other works were added in addition to the Torah. And now we say, now this is the word of God. We still doing that today? We still adding stuff to that Old Testament? What if old stuff is found? Should we add it? I don't know. So this happens over time. And eventually we get to a guy and we're in the year 168 BC. We're getting really, really close to the time of Jesus at this point. Was God still talking to men by means of prophets in the year 168 BC? No. The prophetic word had ceased and God was not talking to men. But something happened to the people of God in the year 168 BC and it had a lot to do with a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. He self-titled himself as the illustrious God. I'm going to read for you out of the book of 1 Maccabees. Is that a book in your Bible? Is it a book in some people's Bible? Yes. Although this book, 1 Maccabees, is not scripture, part of our Old Testament canon, can we consult it as historical material concerning the people of God? But is it authoritative? Is it inspired by God? If you think it is, then you ought to put it in your canon. You've made that part of your canon of scripture. Just as other things are historically accurate and good and we can consult them, so are some of these other works. But it doesn't mean they're scripture. It's very different. But I'm going to read for you out of 1 Maccabees, chapter 1, verses 54 through 57. Just listen to what it says. This has to do with our Old Testament scriptures. On the 15th day of Chislev, on 145th year, they built an abomination of desolation on the altar. And in the cities around Judah, they built altars. And at the windows of their houses and in the streets, they burned incense. And the books of the law that they found, they burned them with fire after cutting them up. And where the book of the covenant was found with some, if that person would give approval to the law, what he was reading, the decree of the king was, execute him. 168 BC, with Antiochus Epiphanes at the charge, we're getting rid of the Jewish scriptures, we're getting rid of anyone who would give allegiance to this law. Let's get rid of it. Let's get rid of those people. Okay, so in 167 BC, we have the whole Maccabean revolt. This is where Hanukkah comes from that the Jewish people celebrate. The story of this comes from First and Second Maccabees, if you're interested in that. Um, but it's around this time that it's believed that Judas Maccabeus, who led this revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes and this whole thing against the Jews, um, that he then, after the revolt was over, went around and searched and found all the remaining scriptures he could find, and he compiled them into a book, much like the order of the Old Testament like we have today. And so that's the earliest occurrence that we have of a compilation, compilation of a list, because he needed to know and find what are all... Now, it's not like he decided what books go in the Old Testament. He said, I know what books are God's word, I need to find them all. So he wasn't deciding, well, I guess these are the only ones I found, so I, I mean, I guess that's our word now. 
But no, he was saying, I know which ones are there, and he, he finds them, he compiles them, he says, so that this never happens again, let's make a better compilation, let's make a list, let's make it known that this is the word of God. And so we look back and we can see the earliest accounts of a listing of the word of God. But as far as written format that we can go back and see, when is the earliest time in all of human history that we can look back and say, when did someone write down that we only have 39 books in our Old Testament? When is the earliest time that we can, don't you want to know that? We only have 39 books in our Old Testament. When did people start to believe that? During the time of Moses? Get your biblical chronology right. Could it have possibly been during the time of Moses? Absolutely not. During the time of what biblical character? None. Because scripture would have already been written. So it was after all of them. And it was uh, during this period of transition, right? When they start to look back at all God had said, all God had done. Because how else could you do it? if it was still being written. You have to wait till it's done being written and then look back on time, right? I mean, that only makes logical sense that that's how you have to do it. So to answer my question, what is the, I better not look at that clock, 6.05, we've got a long way to go. No, I'm, I'm kidding. What, uh, what is the oldest record, the oldest thing we can look back and say, this person said, way back then that the Old Testament only contains 39 books, the same 39 books we have today. I'm interested in that. I hope you are too. And I'm going to tell you where that's found. It is found in the works of Josephus in the year AD 94. I brought my copy of Josephus with me tonight because I went through and I read this earlier when I was doing some research and I bookmarked it. Because this is all the works of Josephus, a Jewish historian, writing in the first century. I found where he wrote about this. And I'm going to leave it up here. If you want to look at it, I highlighted. This is a source. This is source material here. Okay? You want to know where it's found? The works of Josephus. It's right here. You can read it. Here's what he said. In the year AD 94... For we have not, that is the Jews, he was a Jew, we have not an innumerable multitude of books among us, disagreeing from form and contradicting one another, like the Greeks have, but only 22 books, which contain the records of all past time and are justly believed to be divine. And of them, five belonging to Moses, which contains the law, the traditions and the origin of mankind until his death. The interval of time was little short, these 3,000 years, but as to time from the death of Moses to the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, who reigned after Xerxes, prophets who were after Moses, they wrote down what was done in their time in 13 books. So he's saying what these 22 books contain. The remaining books contains, contain hymns to God, the precepts of the conduct of human life. It is true that our history has been written. Um, the reason I'm struggling is because I'm using normal English words rather than these old English words. 
But it's been esteemed like with authority with the former by our forefathers because there has not been an exact succession of prophets since that time. And we firmly give credit to those. I'm going to skip a little bit. No one has been so bold either to add anything to them or to take anything away from them or to make changes in them. What does that sound like? Sounds like a complete canon of scripture that is the divine he said it word of god there's a certain number of books and no more and no less that's what he's saying right i mean it's exactly what he's saying but then he also says it becomes natural to all jews immediately from birth to esteem these books to contain divine doctrines this was shortly after our new testament was being written this was written and it was already believed in the jewish community Okay, how many books did he say? We got a problem. We've added some, haven't we? No, we haven't. It's the same. He just counted them differently, and I want to show you. Uh, we'll have to pick up with this next week, but in the last few minutes we have, we're going to look at this, the Tanakh. Okay, so the Hebrew Bible is called the Tanakh. If you want to refer to the 39 books of our Old Testament, it is called the Tanakh. The Tanakh. Okay? Oh, I, I broke down what that means. So it's, the Tanakh is bro broken down into three parts. It is the law, first five books, and then is the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. And when you take the first letter of each of those and you add a vowel in between, then it becomes a word, a word that's made up. And that word is Tanakh. That makes sense, doesn't it? Their Old Testament, their Bible was called the Tanakh. So uh, we call it the Old Testament. They would call it the Tanakh. Okay, still do today. Jewish community still call it the Tanakh today. All right, uh, next one. Here it is, I made this image, and what I'm gonna do is I'm going to actually print this for you in little handout form so that you have it, okay? Um, as soon as I'm able to do that, I'll do that for you and I'll bring it. Hopefully by next week, we'll see. But what I wanna show you is the breakdown, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. Um, uh, Kumash, it's sometimes called that, just relates to the number five. It's also called the Pentateuch. It's called the teaching. It's called the Torah. It's all the same thing, okay? That's the first five books. That's the first section. Uh, next is the Nevi'im, the prophets. What do we have contained here? The former prophets and the latter prophets. What's weird about that? Joshua is a prophet? I thought that was like a historical book. Right, they would call this prophetic history which it really is when you think about it, but that's how they would see it. There's the former prophets and the latter prophets. What's something else that you notice? Sam, the book of Samuel. What do you think that contained? First and second Samuel. All of a sudden, our number is gonna start to add up to 39. And the next, uh, Kings. Oh, we have first and second Kings. What do you notice about the latter prophets, number four? What's it say? The 12, see one book, it was one book. Okay, the 12, there's 11 more, add that to our number. Okay, so emet, emet's a pretty interesting word, it means truth in Hebrew, but 
it's actually an acrostic because you take the first letter of Psalms, first letter of Proverbs, first letter of Job, and guess what word it makes? Emet, truth. And so uh, there's, in the Ketuvim, in the writings, there's Emet, the truth, Proverbs, Psalms, and Job, five Megliot, which just means five scrolls, because they most likely kept them all together in a little box. Uh, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. Another thing that's interesting about those five books is that those are the five books that they would use during Jewish feast time. You might think, when did the Jewish community ever use the Song of Solomon, Song of Songs? During a feast, it was publicly read. Anyway, I thought you'd like that. Other books, Daniel, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah was one book. So we can add another one there. And so you see how it chronicles, First Saint Chronicles, and add another one there. But you can see how um, uh, you can boil it down here on this to 24 books, which is what this is, 24. But Josephus said how many books? 22. How many letters in the Hebrew alphabet? Hmm? 22. They liked it that it matched. So what they did was, I'll get this right, they added Ruth to Judges, and they added Lamentations to Jeremiah so they could get that nice number. 22, just like our alphabet. So it's, it's 24, yes, that's true, but it's, it's 22, sure, but these are the 22 books that Josephus is referencing that were already considered closed, authoritative, word of God, in the same century that our New Testament was being written, do you find that to be significant? What if Jesus said that those 39 books were the word of God, authoritative, and he didn't say, hey, you're missing some. What if Jesus said that? Would you find that interesting? And would you say, if the Old Testament was considered the word of God, to Jesus, then we don't need to add anything else to it, even if we find it today. Would you say that to be true? I wish Jesus had said something like that. Luke twenty four forty four. That's your big reference. Luke twenty four forty four. Do I have that on the screen? Yeah. We'll end with this tonight. I skipped some things, but okay. I'll make sure and answer any questions you have at the beginning of next week before we move on, okay? But Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And they opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What do you think the law, the prophets, and the Psalms referred to? Go back to that other slide. Okay, the law, the prophets, and what's the first book in the Ketuvim? Is it also the biggest? That's what they started to call the Ketuvim as Psalms. So when Jesus says, all that was written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, and then he says, these are the scriptures. This is talking about a completed set of works, which by the time of Jesus contained 22 books, which we understand to be the 39 books of our Old Testament today. And so the Old Testament that Jesus is referencing is the Old Testament that we reference today. 
Does that feel pretty good? I hope that it does to you. I hope that you know that the Old Testament that we have today is the Old Testament as Jesus saw it. Now, we're going to talk about something next time called the Septuagint because Greek made things real complicated. All of a sudden, now there's a Greek Hebrew Bible and it contains more books than 22. What are we going to do with those? We'll answer that question next time. The Catholics said, let's keep them. But we said no. Okay? So we're going to look at that next time. Um, do I have another slide that I missed at the end? There we go. So in summary, before the New Testament era, the Old Testament canon was understood to be two things. Number one, the word of God. I have some references here, but I'll, I can quickly quote them. Therefore, the, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, he was quoting from Psalm 95, but he said the Holy Spirit said it. That's the word of God, right? Um, disagreeing among themselves, they departed. Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your, prof to your fathers through Isaiah. Holy Spirit said it, but who said it? Isaiah said it, and where did he read it? In the Tanakh. When he read the Tanakh, when he read Isaiah, he knew he was reading the very words of God by means of the Holy Spirit. This was understood by the New Testament era. Um, when the Bible speaks... God speaks. This was the view of the apostles of the early church. This is not new. But there is a guy who has made it famous that this is, is new. His name is Bart Ehrman. We might talk about him, but we'll see. He's, he's made a big old mess of things. Word of God, next. Not only that, but it was completed and it was closed. This was the word of God. The Greek Old Testament contains some more things, and we'll look at that. Um, but uh, without getting into another can of worms, I'll finish for tonight, okay? So I hope that we've been able to trace a line here tonight, okay, to see how there was source material that brought this together, and then it was, compil it was compiled over time, and then at one time in history, it was different scrolls, and they started to burn them, and they said, no, 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 let's keep them all together. Let's make sure we never lose them again. And then by the New Testament era, it was well understood in the Jewish community. These are our books. This is the word of God. They are divine. And there are 22 of them. But we would say there are 39 of them. The 22 or 24 are the same as our 39. And I hope we all see that. Jesus understood that. And that gives us hope. And that gives us confidence. And that's what it should do. And it gives us reason to, or, or, or the ability now to have conversations with people about these things. Where did your Bible come from? Is your Bible the word of God? How did Jesus view the Bible? We could start to answer those things. Okay? Well, let's pray. We'll be finished for tonight. Lord, thank you for our time together and uh, for looking at the history of your word and uh, it's so comforting to us to be able to open our Bible to look even at Luke 24 and to see that Jesus himself is referencing back to these things that we're learning about. The Jewish Old Testament, the Tanakh, and we start to be able to get into the mind of Jesus and the apostles and the early church and the Jewish community and how they viewed the Old Testament. And uh, I pray that you would strengthen our faith through these things as we walk through them together. We pray for your help. Now as we go, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.
All right, thank you guys so much. If you're interested in this at all, I'm just going to leave it here if you want to look at it, okay? That's Josephus.